You are listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders, for that moment in your career when the book stops with you. This is your window into the world of how to lead successfully. Now, over to your host, James Nagel. So welcome to a new episode of the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast, the show for first-time leaders. I'm your host, James Nagel, and my guest today is Vanessa Barros. Today, we're going to explore the importance of cultural intelligence for expat leaders. Vanessa is a true global citizen, and she makes the rest of us seem very parochial. With a Portuguese father, a French mother, and a curious mind, it's no surprise that she pursued an international career working for the world's top ad agencies on behalf of the big corporates. But what makes her stand out from the majority of my network is that with all that real life experience, she turned to academia in her mid forties to do a PhD in cultural intelligence at the Nanyang Business School in Singapore. Her research focuses on the strategies adopted by senior international executives to manage intercultural conflicts effectively. This was the raw material for her book, Don't Mess With My Professionalism, How to Resolve Conflict Across Cultures. Vanessa now shares her time between research, education, and consulting for her firm, Leadership CQ. For anyone working abroad, this is a must listen. And on a personal level, as an Irishman married to a Spaniard who worked 20 years abroad, I'm looking forward to learn. So it's my pleasure to introduce Vanessa Barros. Good morning. <laughs> Vanessa, going back on the uh, the personal link. So we worked together in the early 2000s when our job was to bring Vanish globally. And it is a pleasure to see that pink pack everywhere. And we reconnected recently for your book launch. So let's get into it. Most of my listeners will be aware of IQ, EQ. And now you talk about CQ. So can you tell us a bit about cultural intelligence and your take on it? IQ being the, the academic kind of intelligence um, that was actually developed originally to, to see what the norm would be in the school system. EQ, as we know, the emotional intelligence, which is that ability to grasp our own emotions, others' emotions, and to manage them appropriately for the relationship. What happens in the international arena is that if you only have EQ and you miss out on the cultural knowledge, you might miss out on the interpretation that you think is right of some emotions and therefore completely mismanage the relationship. So cultural intelligence adds to EQ the cultural layer and the cultural knowledge so that uh, you have the capability to manage intercultural uh, relations effectively in the workplace and beyond. It's true. I mean, we've been a global society for, I don't know, 20 years, pretty much the time that we've been, we've been operating. And it's funny, I never came across CQ, cultural intelligence. So, but what I have come across is every time I made a move, and if I think of the big ones like to Russia or to Brazil, it was offered to me a cultural awareness for myself and my wife. Now, to my shame, I didn't take them. Business priorities, excuses, excuses. So have you seen an evolution? Are people paying more attention to this now? There is certainly more people talking about it. 
CQ, the concept itself, came uh, in the year 2000 uh, when there was the, the need to shift to the, the, the whole digital system. And there was um, a, a lack of staff in Singapore uh, and they had to bring a lot of people from other nationalities. And it was a total mess. And, uh, and researchers started to look into would there be a capability that would help these people work together better? And that's how the whole concept of CQ came about. Whether or not people believe in cultural differences, that's an interesting one, because I interviewed over 200 senior leaders, showing them intercultural scenarios. And a lot of them would have told me that this had nothing to do with culture, that it, this had to do with personal styles of management and, and there's a lot of people that still believe that if you, you know, manage according to some Western global values of positive leadership, listening skills, empathy, uh, straightforwardness, uh, you actually manage to, to go by. You, and you go by. Uh, the chances that you will make a big faux pas are more and more uh, remote because of the globalization, people knowing things. So in that sense, the case that I make is always about the missed opportunities. It's, it's more that, that that I feel is, is happening. Because those who were convinced that there was nothing cultural about some of the scenarios might have given me interpretation of the scenarios that were completely off. They might have seen corruption in a, in a context where it was about interpersonal relationship. They might have seen uh, lack of... Uh, uh, authenticity or fairness in cases that it was just a cultural way of doing business. So it, that that could uh, lead to limitations. So there's two things which come out of that. I think one is you're trying to, let's say, sell a missed opportunity. And from a marketing point of view, that's always hard. Yes. It's always hard to say it could be better. And then from the other side, you've given the example of the sort of strong classical Western leader operating globally who says, like, my, my way can work. But I think it's different when you work in a local organization. And, and I think of Russia and Brazil for me, where, in fact, you're the minority. You may, you may be the senior person, but you are the minority. You're right. You're right there. So two things. For the marketing approach, um, I'll, I can throw as well a few numbers, but when you know that 70% of merger and acquisitions fail, and those who fail is due to cultural values, that's big business. And when it comes to first leadership, what I think is interesting is that indeed, you are thrown into a pool of difference that is very different from, say, working at the category level in the headquarters of a multinational setup in a European capital. Uh, suddenly, you are projected as the head of uh, Uzbekistan, Brazil, uh, uh, China. And, and then, as you said, you are amongst the, 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 the few to be either expatriates, and there's fewer and fewer of those now. And, uh, and the chances are that then you are into a vast majority of people who behave very differently from you. And you might be completely missing out on, on their qualities and the opportunities they can bring. And you can be missing out also on how you establish yourself as a leader. Uh, and that is something that um, HR people can approach me with is uh, we, we had this super shining star in our organization. We just send them uh, somewhere. And there's a, 
there's half of the staff that is uh, resigning after two months of them in the job, you know, and you're like, whoa. So when that happens, then the ability, the openness that you had in a multicultural environment of the global corporation becomes a different animal because then you need to have an appreciation of maybe differences that are bigger, uh, bigger in in importance and yet very subtle, that things that you, you may not see uh, very obviously. Uh, but I think that the, one of the examples that I like to give when it comes to establishing yourself as a leader and doing it the wrong way is that notion that leaders that give autonomy uh, are good leaders. And you arrive in a country where the culture is all about top down and where hierarchy is of the utmost importance. And in your first leadership meeting, you say, we've got a big challenge on our plate and I would like to hear what you have to say about it. And people look at you and like, oh my God, a new leader and they don't know what they're doing because they should be telling us what to do. Then who are they to now ask us their our opinion, you know? And so you suddenly completely miss out on the first opportunity to make a good impression like the classic line you don't get the second chance to make the first impression so it, it is remarkable how how some of those basics are missed and one person i coached recently we were talking about adaptation to the local style and i said well surely you're local you're learning the local language which in this case was turkish and it hadn't even arisen well partly because it's a difficult language partly because istanbul is a cool city people are there for two years they enjoy it it, it's not it's not seen as required but yet when he made the effort it was it was clearly an expression of vulnerability because it's difficult you know and it was really well received so where do you stand on that what i would say is that any effort you make towards the other culture as you say is highly uh, regarded and respected and uh, and and it shows you care so even if you don't want to be bilingual in vietnamese uh, in the two years you're going to spend there, to at least know a few little things, to have seen uh, the the one top movie that all the Vietnamese know about, to have uh, understood what is the top song, to have some elements of that local culture so that you can have a beginning of a conversation. And actually, and that's where the whole point of curiosity is, is so important in, in this, is that what is important is not so much the differences, but the commonalities we've got. And we might share the, the same passion for football. We may share the same passion for cinema, for music. For If we know a little bit about the other culture, then you start bridging on a topic that both people are totally passionate about, and that's easy. And then you create a relationship that then, when conflict hits, is a lot easier to sort out than if there's no trust, uh, a particularly effective trust between the two individuals. So which, which companies or organizations are you seeing that do this well? And, and what do they do well? Um, there's definitely a, a, an international organization, the International Aviation and Transportation Association, for instance. And they really embrace cultural intelligence. And embracing it means, as it would be for any kind of big shift or big cultural change in an organization, you need to have a CEO that believes in it. And you need to have an HR uh, 360 that embraces it. So your selection process goes through it, uh, the, the appraisals, the, the remuneration, everything needs to take into account that element because otherwise why bother, right? 
Um, IATA does it to the point where there was a new leader in, in recent years and uh, he came from the French industry and he was French and they, they all spread around the, the organization a paper on French leadership to prepare the employees for what a new CEO being French might mean. And there might have been their generalizations and overgeneralizations, and I, I'm very, very cautious of those. And so in the trainings that we provide, we try to detect the cultural differences, right, rather than labeling people because they're Irish, uh, Scottish, they're going to be that way. No. You witness someone telling you something, and you're like, ah, ah, here I can detect something. Imagine that I tell you, uh, my name is Dr. Bearers. Well, if I start with Dr. Barris, that's probably because I have a sense of hierarchy that is quite high and that I like the labels and that being in my country is an important thing. And uh, research shows that uh, diverse teams are tricky teams. Performance doesn't go higher. If you don't manage a diverse team, it usually goes down uh, because of the... So what, what happens, though, is that if you manage it well, then the, it totally outperforms the, 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 the other teams. And that's something very important to also realize. So it's, everybody's talking about inclusion these days. Yeah, yeah, but inclusion, yes, as long as you manage it and you prepare for psychological safety, am I allowed to say the things that I, that I can say? Am I going to show my vulnerabilities? Uh, am I going to, uh, to say who I am and, and what I believe in? Am I going to acknowledge that I don't drink alcohol in a setup where everybody does? The difference between inclusion and diversity is diversity is about everybody's invited to the table. Inclusion is everybody has a voice. But to have a voice, you need to feel that you are safe in having that voice. And a lot of times, a lot of the times, people don't feel safe. And, and actually, corporate culture is, that, is, is a good buffer in that sense. Because it's between your individual culture, the local culture, then you've got the corporate culture. And th that's the, the middle ground where you can find um, harmony between the, the, the differences, if it's well done. Yeah, I think there's definitely an article that you should write about the, let's call it the downside of this diversity trend. That if it's not managed right, it can be counterproductive and then the wrong learnings are learned. Because I have a few people that I work with currently who are tearing their hair out because the diversity targets have been achieved in terms of male, female, racial, et cetera, et cetera, age even. But there's no better thinking coming out. The group think is more than ever. It's interesting what you said because diversity is, is if, you, if one thinks, and I think you're right, that a lot of corporations believe that diversity is the DNA, then, they, then they're wrong because the diversity is just a, a context, right? Then you need to find the right DNA, and that's where you need to find a soulful culture that where that that diversity, the context of diversity, can uh, can can thrive. That ties back to when, under pressure, we go back to our default, uh, and it's why, in fact, this leadership, this whole area of leadership, is very challenging, especially these days, because now there's much more of an awareness of what you should be doing, and people get it intellectually but it's actually applying it in the reality is the difficult part. You know, from my own experience, I know that when under pressure and I had to deliver, I always bet on my way was the best way. Sometimes it worked and I took the wrong conclusion and sometimes it didn't work. And, uh, and I, maybe, I maybe gained some wisdom. So but you're pointing out on something very, very important, which is um, the, what happens to our brains when we are under pressure. And, uh, and, and that is one of the 
the things that is so important to understand when it uh, when it comes to conflict is that conflict is a tense disagreement. So as soon as there's tension in us, and the first 90 days of any new leader would be that, we are unfortunately in a narrow mind mindset, in a in a in a in a sort of tunnel vision, particularly if the, the spikes of stress go very high, where unfortunately we pick on the information that we're familiar with, we pick on the certainties, we believe in the right and wrong, and the creativity around finding the ways is, is much more difficult. And so that is why it's so important to, to work on oneself in terms of managing uh, our personal balance uh, and that notion of mindfulness that, uh, that everybody keeps talking about, but that is super, super important to be aware of, of your mental state, to give yourself the means to breathe, to take time off at a time where you think you don't have it, but you need a lot of, uh, and I'm including myself in some of my first uh, jobs of, and expatriations, the first four, the first three months were hell. Hell in terms of like being on the verge of, of physical and, and, and mental exhaustion because you give it all. Uh, and what you're saying is very right. We go back to who we are. When you do MBTI, and when the, there's elements of the MBTI that are yours because of you've got accustomed to it. For instance, with the work in advertising, I became extremely detail-oriented. But I'm a big picture person. But I became extremely detail-oriented. Now, you put me under stress, I go back to big picture, big picture. Uh, and so we need to know that. And that's why when we talk about cultural intelligence, it's the answer is not always to adapt. That's not, uh, no, no. The, the, the answer is to create the third culture, that, that ground where both can find comfort zones, even under stress. Well, Vanessa, tell me about the cultural compatibility. There, there's one value, for instance, which I, which is, I find is a very interesting one. It's universalism and, um, and particularism. Do you believe that the law is the law for everybody? Or do you believe that there's always exceptions? I imagine that you are someone who really believes the law is the law. And you go to countries where everything is an exception. You are miserable because you have the impression that you're in corruption land. When it's not, it's a different type of uh, setup. And it's not always about making money and, and enriching yourself. It's really about, well, she's my daughter or she's my niece. And therefore, yes, yeah, she should get the job. Absolutely. Uh, and that's what I do with some organizations as well is when they identify leaders, it's important to kind of look at their profiles and, and check whether it's a green flag, yellow flag, or red flag as to going to certain places. Companies have always done it in a very uh, blunt way, historically. There, there were stories of not sending the 40-year-old the married to Russia. What I am in favor, though, is uh, for people to, uh, the HR to have proper conversations with the individual, with their partner, because the number of times that you have, uh, the, you ask the individual, do you want to be the GM? Yes, I do. Is your partner okay? Yes, they are. And then you interview the, and you have them in tears saying, I don't want to go. You know, you're heading for disaster. So it's a family adventure. And those are, and uh, as, as you will know, 60% of the, of the failures when it comes to expatriations are related to fa family issues. So Vanessa, there's one phrase from your book which I love and which really which really struck me, which is, do we think that the last person we felt was unprofessional at work thought in return that we were highly professional? So 
if we move from the sort of the theory and the what to the how for an individual, how do how do new leaders prepare themselves for these international moves? Do you have any golden golden nuggets? So the the notion of professionalism is I'll I'll just say one quick word about that one because it was a, a big insight for me to realize that very very often when people were uncomfortable with the way others were working they would quite quickly put a label of that's so unprofessional rather than ask themselves the question of hang on a second is this a different way of being professional and uh, who am i to think that i'm superior and and i have this ethnocentric way of you know i i know better and so that's why i i have this challenge of well the next time you see somebody and you think they aren't do you really think that back they'll say, "Oh, what a great person." <laughs> uh not strong enough charismatically as a leader, they will think that you are a total uh blunt uh and uh and simple individual rather than a great leader. I am afraid the preparation is still very weak. And I feel sorry about it because I feel that a lot of people suffer from it and suffer from mistakes that they would have avoided. So the the right preparation getting into the culture of the country before you move in by and and it's not that difficult to find a few um I'm I'm very much into cinema and movies I think are a great way to look at a culture. So if you find a few movies of that country chances are that you'll see something coming out that will quickly show you a spark of the culture the the few words that we talked about of of the 10 20 words of the local country local language that make you show that you care when you got in and i think that the number one um advice is to train tremendously the ability to observe versus interpreting observe is to see the situation as it is no questions asked interpretation is, is when two people can have a different view of what the image means and so there is where your culture plays games on you because that's where your brain is going to bring back what you're used to and and therefore you're going to see what you want to see and uh again paying that little extra care of reading about every country before you go there for the first time and having this little anecdote about the history understanding with who the big enemy is if you don't know the the wars of the past you make faux pas all the time or you don't get situations or you might make massive mistakes of casting for instance as well when it comes to hiring or um that empathy that ability to be there for the people that you care for because as a leader that's what you are right you're your a family i like to think of a, a family figure that takes care of 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 uh of a big family. I think there's a lot of let's say human side there rather than getting your head stuck into the PowerPoint to open your eyes a bit and and you know try and and be open to the creativity and what you can learn from 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 the new country. So Vanessa that's been great. What next for you? Put a sort of recommendation in my first book uh in terms of creating that third culture where the two parties can really be themselves and yet collaborate uh in a, in a harmonious way the next move is to 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 work on the type of leadership that can create that soulful culture 
Thanks a lot, Vanessa. Thanks for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the Swim Not Sink Leadership Podcast. Subscribe at swimnotsink.com forward slash podcast.